Welcome to Checking In, a Lodging DEI chat. I am Oren Stewart, your studio host. We have a great episode in store for you tonight. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Once again, thank you for joining us here at Checking In. I'm Oren Stewart, your studio host. Now let's introduce our host of the show, Miranda and Leo. And how are you both? Hi, great. How are you? Doing well. Good to see you guys. Hey, Oren, it's good to see you. Miranda, how's it going? Going great. Happy first day of Pride Month. Yes, right indeed. On. indeed summer, it is. Summer is here. <laughs> it's... All right. Yes, you all have a great show. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Thank you. So, Miranda, here we are. We've got a live show. We got live action tonight, huh? I know, I know. And I guarantee you one of my kids is going to come running in the room any minute. <laughs> the dog's going to start barking. The doorbell's going to start ringing. <laughs> it won't happen. It'll, it'll be smooth sailing tonight. It'll all be good. It's, it's going to work out. Didn't well, you give warnings to everyone though before before we went live? Did you give warnings to the neighborhood and everybody? Everyone has been told. Well, everyone has been begged. <laughs> Everyone's been begged. Okay, that's right. Because they might be watching. We want wouldn't want them to think you you told them, right? Yes, exactly. Now, now here's the thing. You know, I'm not. There's no racquetball tonight. That's why one of the reasons we were able to do the show tonight because we didn't have racquetball this week at all. And are so, you having withdrawals? I'm I'm hurting. Yeah, let me let me tell you a quick story. Then we'll then we'll get to this. So when I let the folks at the at the Northeast Regional Rec Center where we run our racquetball program, I told them there's no racquetball this week, and they go the entire week. Like yeah, <laughs> the entire week there's no racquetball, and they said, "Are you okay?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm fine. I just want to take a week off." Some of the kids, some of the players, and some of the folks that work at the facility said, "You won't make it a week." <laughs> you won't make it a week. And a host of one of the shows that the Leon Thomas group produces, his name is Michael Haney. His show, one of the shows we do with him is called Wake Up Baltimore. And we talk about all things positive, all things Baltimore. Mike, I've been trying to get him to come out and play racquetball. And he said he can make it Saturday. So I will be on the court Saturday at 11 o'clock. So if you're in the Baltimore area, anybody watching in Baltimore, why don't you come on by and join us for racquetball, the Northeast Regional Rec Center. So am I having withdrawals? Kind of. Yes. Kind of. I am. Yes. I'm so worried that you're not going to make it to Saturday. <laughs> wow. So that would mean tonight <laughs> or tomorrow. And to find out about that racquetball program, go to racquetballrevival.com. Okay, enough about that. Miranda, tell us about tonight's guest. I'm really excited to meet him. Okay, our guest is amazing. I have been so fortunate to have him as a guest in my classes for several years now. Um, and I, I think I've shared this with him, but I'll share with our listeners. So, he comes in to speak to my class about contemporary issues in hospitality management. And um, afterwards, I had students just bombard me asking me for his contact information because they were so impressed and just really wanted to reach out with follow-up questions. And I had a student say to me, you know what? When he walked in, 
I was upset because I thought it was going to be just another old white guy. And he blew my mind, not just another old white guy. So I'm so glad that he is uh, taking the time to be here with us today. All right. So why don't we go ahead and bring on our guest, Jay Litt. Hi, Jay. How you doing? Just fine. How you doing? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for being with us this evening. Thanks for being here. Good to be here. Good to be here. Good to be alive. Now, now before we, we get into the real questioning, I, I read some things about you, and I hear that you you play tennis, or you're a tennis fan, that you like tennis, right? Well, actually, I'm much better at racquetball. So I'll be in Baltimore uh, this Sunday. And, well, uh, love, love to meet up with you. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. This <laughs> Tennis is my sport. Take him out of the show. Get him out of here. Episode over. <laughs> tennis, tennis creates the first word in racket ball. Just remember, wow. we, we use a racket. We don't use a racket ball in tennis. So you're, you know, you're just kind of like, you know, the next step from tennis. That's, but that's okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> Man, it's getting rough already. We're, we're only five minutes into the show. 30 seconds into the conversation, it's getting then rough already. In, then they brought in pickleball, which is, <laughs> what is that? What, I mean, what is that? Racquetball without a wall. Forget about what, it. What is this pickleball stuff? Please get it out of here. There get you go. You have some here. common ground to bond over. Yes, we've got our bonding space already. Yes, yeah. just, just like that. And wouldn't it be great if in all conversations with everyone we meet that we could find that instant bond. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't the world be a much cooler place? What do you it's think? called love. Yes. That's yeah. true. It's yeah. just a matter. The other day I was traveling to Atlanta and I tried to experiment because I was reading a book about, about love. And one of the things they said was, try smiling at people you don't know. And so I started doing that. And the people looked at me, they were looking at me with a sour look and I smiled. And by God, they smiled back. So I just went through the whole day counting how many smiles I could create. And it was, I lost count. Yeah. So there you go. There you nice. go. Very I nice. like it. I like it. I like it. Go ahead, Miranda. Thank I'll step you. Back. Um, so I'm sure that many of our listeners are um, familiar with you and your awesome work that you've done throughout your very rich career. Um, I'd love for you to, though, for anyone who's not familiar with some of the things that you've done, if you want to just tell us in a nutshell, who are you? What do you do? Or what are you most proud of having done? I got to show you this. Can you see that? Yep. Okay. That's part of my journey. That was the valedictorian graduation speech of Florida International University. First graduation 50 years ago, 51 years ago. Uh, so my background is basically a, a person that comes from Queens, New York. I uh, graduated with a degree in sociology and religion. I entered the U.S. Peace Corps where I planted rice for two and a half years in the jungles of Aklan, Kalibo, Panay Island, and started my career as a busboy dishwasher at the Fountain Blue Hotel. And uh, during that time, I fell in love with the hospitality business. I'm sure we can get deeper into that and my insights into that. And I met up with a, a gentleman named Tony Marshall, who was the first uh, was the assistant dean at FIU at a swimming pool in, in uh, South Florida. He asked me what I was doing and I said, you don't want to know, but uh, what can you help me with? He said, how about a job? I said, good. I met Jerry Latin, first dean at FIU. Uh, 
there were no buildings at that time, just trailers. And he said, what kind of job do you want? I said, what can you offer? He said, how about a job in a hotel? You are in a hotel school trailer. Oh, I did. I had a night busboy job at the Fountain Blue, moved into a daytime uh, job at the Fountain Blue in event management. And then he asked me if I wanted to go to school, AFIU. And in 1972, I entered the uh, very first program at La Primera Casa, the first building at FIU. And I, uh, there were 13 professors. I already had a degree. I was able to graduate in 12 months with a degree in hospitality management. And Dean Latin actually single-handedly got me into the uh, training program at uh, Sheraton. And I went to a training program. I went to the major D in Dallas and from there to Puerto Rico, where I met my lovely wife, who I'm married to now for 49 years. And I renovated uh, the Puerto Rico Sheraton. And I began a long career. I spent uh, 12 years with them, general manager of St. Regis in Manhattan, general manager of Sheraton Brickle Point. And then I went private for seven years and bought hotels, sold hotels, had hotels in the South Beach, and then ended up at Brickle Point on Brickle Avenue with interstate hotels. And I spent about 12 years with them as a regional vice president. And they were bought and put together a 230,000 room consortium of hotels, of which I became the executive vice president of operations. We were bought by Blackstone. And I continued on and became a, a, a VP of a, of a startup, which was a uh, asset management group and an ownership group of seven hotels. And we grew to 36. And I renovated them all and left them and started the renovation company. And my lovely 37-year-old boy is uh, working with me now. We have 18, million, 18 projects going on, $80 million going on. And to give you an idea of where I am in my life, one of the senior executives at Marriott asked me yesterday, why aren't you retired? And I said to them, I am. And they said, how can you be retired if you're working so hard? I said, you know, retirement is a fungible world. When you think of retirement, you think of, Golf, canasta, mahjong. When I think of retirement, I think of what do I want to do until I die that I like? That's what I'm doing. I like what I do. I love what I do. And I love teaching other people what I do. And that happens to be hospitality. It happens to be renovating hotels, talking about how to build hotels. It's my life. So I'm doing this 52 years. And if I live to 20 more, it'll be 72 years. That's awesome. So you have arguably seen and done it all everywhere. <laughs> well, I, I, I've done only one thing in one area. I've been very careful never to stray off my path. And as I get older, my path becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And don't get me into psychic areas because I'll take the rest of the interview. Um, <laughs> I, I found myself at my age truly understanding who I am and what I want to do more than ever in my life. It slowed me down dramatically. Miyamoto um, Musashi in the Book of Five Rings is quoted as saying, really successful people are never busy. And I've slowed myself down to the point where I can see what I want to do. And I'm not pushed by anybody. Uh, we recently were asked by a major firm if we joined them. I said, no, joint venture with you. But the only joining I have is with God. There's nothing else involved in my life. I am basically very 
level at this point. I love that. Leon? So Jay, you, you were in the 1973, the class of 1973 at Florida International University. Yes. And you, you started as a as a busboy dishwasher and basically you you mm -hmm. are what many would consider to be a hospitality success story. Look at everything you've done, where you started and and, and everything that you've accomplished in, in your career. The it's kind of a, a two part question. In when you started working in hotels, was this the thing that you knew you would do for so long, or was this a yeah, I'll do it and see how it goes, and then maybe something else will come along better? So was this like the plan that this is what you were you were going to do, or did you have other things you were considering then? It's a great question. I have always been pulled by the wind. I literally have never made a decision on my career. I simply followed the path that was being laid out in front of me. And at the time when I joined FIU, I was basically just getting great sun, having some fun with stewardesses, they were called then. And everybody was from Vietnam. It was wonderful. I had no plan. And this guy, Jerry Latin, says, why don't you just go into a hotel? When I got into the hotel, I went, wow, because I was a sociologist. And when I got to that first night as a busboy, and I was the only person there that spoke English, and I was surrounded by busboys and dishwashers, many of whom were doctors from Cuba. And the manager said, you know, you really got to speak English, you're in charge, take over. And I asked people to do things, and the soda jerk, they called him the soda jerk that made soda, Manuel, said to me, Jay, come here a second. You're not going to get what you want here unless you learn how to speak a little Spanish. Let me teach you one sentence. Hágame un favor. Hágame un favor. I said, what's that? Do me a favor. I said, why should I do him a favor? And he looked at me and he said, do you want to get it done? And that was it. Wow. I said, I fell in love with a group of people that weren't from my island, they were from my background. They were far more intelligent than me. But I suddenly realized, there's something wrong here. <laughs> These guys are lawyers and doctors. I'm like a piece of you-know-what, and I'm just learning now to be a busboy. That turned me on. The real shocker, or real shocker was when I moved to daytime. And I got my first tip. Now, you might think of a tip as something you give a waiter. A tip is an English concept from the 1600s, it actually meant to ensure promptness. Because in between rides on, 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 on the, on the uh, carriages, you had half an hour to go to the bathroom and eat. And you gave a tip to ensure promptness before the meal, which is why we tipped maitre d's. The day I got my first tip, I realized that I had in me to be servile. I had in me to be, I could crush my personality to get what I want done. And that changed my entire life. And I'll talk about how that changed my attitude towards DEI as well. But it changed my entire life because I realized I did not have to be a prince. I could be a papa and act like a prince. And I loved it. Mm -hmm. I love okay. that. Speaking of DEI, so throughout your career, I know you mentioned that you found yourself early on in a position where you perhaps were the, the, were the minority. How have you seen diversity, equity, and inclusion change 
in higher levels in our industry throughout your career, or have you seen it change? Well, I'll give you a little backup. In the, um, I went to a high school which was half African American and half white, and um, I was on the white side, as you can probably tell, uh, and uh, and mostly Italian. When I left that environment, I went to college. There was severe uh, racism. It was, a, it was just hard. I was at Bowling Green State University. There were probably 50 African-American students. It wasn't a pleasant place. I went then to Parsons College in Fairfield, Iowa. At that college, I read a book called Black Like Me. Blew my mind out of, out of the water. And I took a look around and said, hmm, got some, got some problems here. And I wrote a whole bunch of articles for the newspaper under a foreign name, ex explaining why cities were burning and what's going on. I was dating a girl from West Indies. I took her to a high school, uh, a, New Year, a New Year's Eve party. She wasn't allowed in. I suddenly realized there's a lot going on here. And if, after that, I went to the Peace Corps. I went to the Philippines. And I, I didn't have a real touch of diversity until I went to FIU. Uh, FIU at that time was whatever it was. But my job when I got into the industry, and your question, Miranda, is over the years, have I seen a change? So let me tell you what I think, because you did ask me to come here anyway. So whether this is a popular thing I'm going to say or not, what I realized when I got into the hotel industry back in 1972, it's, a, it's an industry of servility. It's an industry of servants. It's an industry based upon being a servant. And when I realized I was a good servant, I knew I could make a lot of money in this industry but I had to be a servant while I was doing it. So my first 30, 40 years, I was basically a servant. Yes, sir, what do you want? I wasn't on the other side. And early on, when I was on the committee uh, that helped stop the boycott in Miami back then, you know, I was, I was, a, I was sent to six different high schools, Liberty City, Opelika, and I spoke to audiences of all black students, juniors and seniors. And I was looking at them, and they were looking at me. I wasn't shocked. I was used to dealing with large groups of African-Americans because of my background. But I sensed there was something wrong. And what was wrong was I was asking them to think about coming into the hotel business when their parents may have been in positions that they considered servants, maids, housemen, busmen. And it was a big leap for me to say to them, Nah, 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 nah. Don't worry about that. You're going to come to the hotel business and you're going to become a manager. Didn't work. It wasn't good. It was hard. And I think it's still sort of hard. Uh, but we're making, we're making, I see strides. I think DEI and the inclusion and uh, diversity, just the awareness has been huge. Um, my first job as a resident manager at the Sheraton uh, Park Avenue, 1976-ish. Uh, very luxurious hotel. I served under the first woman general manager in the history of the hotel business in a major hotel. Her name was wow. Jetta Brenner. Yeah, her name was Jetta Brenner. And she brought me in and uh, she asked me what I would think of being the resident manager to a woman general manager. I looked at her and I said, what a wild question. Well, why, what, would be the, what would be the big difference here? What's the difference? You know, Jetta was more interested in the sheets at the time, or the Haagen-Dazs ice cream. I was more interested in how much money we're making and fighting the union. But 
it showed that at that point in 1996, there was one woman general manager in hospitality. And the second one came in to, to Washington. I remember her as well. It, it was incredible. And, you know, 50 years later or 40 years later, the first thing I did when I started talking about DEI was how do we get more women into positions of authority? Because they have an incredible ability to run a hotel. It's a different dimension. So you, there is a difference. I mean, you might have two highways next to each other. One is called a woman's highway and a men's highway. They manage differently. And they manage differently because of their abilities. And I think, interestingly enough, we're moving more towards the need for women's management abilities than men. Because a lot of this is because of AI, and a lot of this is because a lot of the men things have been taken care of. Now we're talking about what is left, what is, what is for the women's side of it to make this a, a more holistic industry, a softer industry, an industry with less people that are managing. So there's a great opportunity in the future, as I said in your class a couple of times, Miranda, to go from event management to ownership management, to focus on getting women into positions where they are controlling the future of the industry more so than, than men. And at some point, those two pathways will cross. When is that? Probably won't see it me, but who knows? It's moving in that direction. Awesome. That's wild. So what year did you say you worked for the first female general manager? Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, 66. Wow. And it's 96. I, you know, I tell you, it's terrible. My mind is freaking out. No, it's actually about 76. But 79, I became general manager of the same regions. So it was 1976. And that was the first GM of a major corporate hotel. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. Go ahead, Leon. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. Let me ask you this. So when you approached that group of, of African-Americans and asking them to come to work in the hotel business, and you mentioned that their parents were, were maids and busboys and so forth, at that time, were, were there still some hotels that did not allow Blacks to stay in, in those properties? At that time, yes. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a quick story. I became the general manager of Sheraton Bow Harbor. That was 19, whew, 1983. Uh, Bow Harbor, Florida. You all know it? I've been Bow there. Florida, Bow Harbor, Florida has a shopping center, which is called the most expensive shopping center in the world. So the story is I get the general manager's job. It was a dream for me. I dreamt of this story, dreamt of this place. The Big Iron, number one resort hotel for Sheraton worldwide. And we moved into the eighth floor my wife and I, and my two dogs, Baron and, and uh, Duffy, Duffy. And we were dream, dream, limousine, blah, blah, blah. And I started finding out stuff about Balhara I didn't know. So have you, have you ever heard of Arthur Linkletter? Oh, yeah, Arthur Linkletter. He, yeah. yeah, he owned a hotel called the Ivanhoe. And there was a sign at his front desk that said, no Jews, dogs, or the N-word. Right there, front desk. Wow. Balhara, Balhara. There were two sides of Bell Harbor. There was the condominiums on the ocean, and then there were uh, homes next to the shops. You may not believe this, but in the deeds of the homes, it said no Jews could live there. Really? In the deeds. Yeah. Wow. Really. 83. In the deeds. In so 83. Day, 83. 
anything. So one day my, my secretary comes in and goes, Mr. Lift is a madman out here. He's all dressed in black. I said, well, send him in. I love madmen. In comes this madman who's actually a Hasidic rabbi. He says, my name is Shalom Lifskar. You're a Jew. I want your ballroom for a synagogue. I said, you're crazy. I, said, I, have, I have meetings going on and stuff. Well, you remember who I am. You call me when you need me. I tell you right here. I'm telling you a story. That night at three in the morning, I get a call. I live in the hotel. Security says, you better come downstairs. We had a, we had a promenade with shops. The shoe shop got up and left, took all this stuff and left without paying the bill. I called Shalom up. I said, we have a place where your souls can come. Kind of funny souls. I said, uh, he said, I'm going to have the first service Friday night. And he did the first service of the Shula Bal Harbor in my shoe shop. My wife attended. Uh, we formed the committee. We built a Shula Bal Harbor, which is the exact duplicate of the Shula Sophia Bulgaria, which was killed by the Nazis. And he opened the shul, which is right now a big, thriving shul in Surfside, next to Bal Harbor. He was the first resident of the homes of Bal Harbor. He forced his way in somehow. Now Bal Harbor is semi-Orthodox community. So these things happen. But yeah, in 1983, absolutely. It wasn't just that. It was, yeah, racism was live and well in 83. It was live and well in hotels. There weren't hotels that said you couldn't come here. If you went to big resorts, you didn't see a lot of African-Americans. It just wasn't that way yet. It wasn't that way yet. And the hotel business, as you may or may not know, we have about four or five distinctive departments in our hotels. Housekeeping, food and beverage, engineering, blah, blah, blah. Each one is typically staffed by different groups of people. And always had been housekeeping was African-American. And the restaurants became Latin, you know, and the housekeeping changed. It went from, from African-American to Latin, now it's Haitian. All these, all these areas change as time goes by. But racism is not new. Racism is old. Always been there, always will. Uh, and it's just a matter of our working through it in hospitality. And I have some ideas about how that works in hospitality that we can discuss as well. That was actually going to be my next question. You have seen monumental change. What do you think we need to do right now, today, to continue to push the needle? Dignity. You need to give people dignity. It's great to say DEI. That first word should say dignity. When you have a group of people, 35 women or men, who are attending to guest rooms, they're forced to wear a uniform, which immediately indicates that they are made, even though we changed the name to room attendant. The question is, what can we do in our industry to give these people dignity and raise that job to the same job as a bank teller? It's not impossible, but it takes time. It means when I go to a hotel, I own hotels, and right now I'm renovating 20. I walk in there and I say, they say, what do you want to see, our, our guest room? No, I want to see your employee cafeteria. It will tell me who they are. It will tell me what their integrity is like. We have the right in our hotels to take positions which have been historically at the bottom of the rung. They're always going to be that way, but raise them up in dignity to where they are at the same level as a bank teller or a person that works at Saks Fifth Avenue. And how do you do that? 
Well, you first have to accept the fact that it's a problem. That's tough. If you can get someone to accept that, well, then you raise the level of the cafeteria. You change their uniforms so they're incredibly interesting and better. You make sure their locker rooms are who you are. Uh, I don't think you've been through many hotel locker rooms, but it's terrible. So I have, if, I am, if I am not forced, but if I get a job at the lowest pay possible, except maybe in New York City, but I'm at the low rung of the, of the, of the building and I'm making up rooms, I'm cleaning up vomit, I'm, I'm cleaning bathrooms. And that night you go home, there's your family. Hi, mom, how was your day? Well, how was your day, mom? It wasn't spectacular. It, it was kind of shitty. It's a job. So how do you make that job better? Dignity. If you can give that job dignity through better uniforms, better locker rooms, better cafeterias, better, better information to them, make them part of the staff, not just part of that part of the back of the house. Maybe we have a possibility in hospitality. And isn't it funny that the word hospitality is even used when we're in this situation? It should be de-hospitality. There's two sides of this. There's our guests and there's the people who serve the guests. Until we realize that the people that serve the guests have to be closer to the guest side, we're going to have non-diversity, non-inclusiveness. That makes sense? That makes a ton of sense. Absolutely. Leon, you look like you have thoughts. Yeah. You know, Jay, have you met Craig Poole? Are you familiar with him? Have you met him at all? I think I know the name. Craig Poole is the president of Reading Hospitality. They run a double tree in Reading, Pennsylvania. And Craig Poole was the person that hired me for my first job in the hotel business. He hired me as a night auditor at the Hampton Inn Pittsburgh Airport. And Craig has you your thoughts on how to take care of your team members your employees whatever term we're using mirror what you just just talked about and so my first experience as a line level employee was craig who has the same thoughts as you and so when i worked with craig i thought that treating employees the way you just described was the way it's done. That was my first experience. I thought that's what it is, right? Then when I went to work with other other managers and other companies and I saw different ways of handling things, I'm like, well, wait a minute, why are they doing it that way? And, and I would bring ideas and say, no, you're really supposed to do it like this. You're really supposed to do it like this. What Craig said is, boom, 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 you're supposed to do it this way. And people are looking at me like I was the knucklehead and how to how to take care of people. So I, I stayed in touch with Craig and now he's he's managing um, the, the, the ownership group. He's in charge of the Doubletree in Reading, Pennsylvania. And I was at his hotel last year. And I walked in the door and I just looked around and I went, I see Craig, I see dignity in, in the employees, I see the staff, and I started having conversations with them and they were telling me how great it is to work there and to work for him. Right. And I hear him saying it and I hear you saying it, and I don't hear many others saying, this is the way you're supposed to treat people. 
What do we got to do? Do we have to have a show every week to bring folks on like this? Tell me. Let's let's do something. Let's get this rolling. I loved what what you said, Jay. I loved it. I love that you're you're you have that way of thinking about people. I just love it. I um, I'm taking over a hotel in uh, Peachtree Corners, Atlanta. I'm going to renovate it to Marriott, 222 rooms. That's a significant deal. It's like six to eight million dollars, and I make a lot of money. I'm not going to lie. I like money, uh, but I like doing what I do. And I, I went to that hotel, and the employees were amazing. I could feel their love. But you ask a very interesting question. And that question is almost um, a very deep understanding about why people buy hotels. So I'm going to tell you why people buy hotels. It's not because they like hotels. They like cash, C-A-S-H. 95% of the people that own hotels are not hotel business people. They're people that love cash. Hotels make cash. And to make the cash, guess what? You got to hold them for five years, three to five years. So think about this. Think if you're an employee in a hotel and every three to five years, everyone you know leaves away, goes away. All the management goes away, owners go away. And you're sitting there going, when do I go away? What kind of stability is that? That's number one. Number two, when you look at why hotels make money, there's two areas, food and beverage and rooms. How do we make the third category you make money from your employees? How do you measure that? How do you measure whether a hotel gets return guests because of their employees? And what's that worth in money? I'm not saying I know how to do that. I'm saying it can be done if that's your plan. If your plan is to say, we have good employees, people are going to come back. It happens in restaurants. I love that restaurant, man. The waiters and waitresses are great. They say that. And all these airlines, all these people have these uh, percentages of guest complaints and all that. But what do they do to their employees? Do they prove to the owners of these businesses that by having amazing employees, you have more business? They think by putting in a swimming pool, they think by putting in a new restaurant, that's going to make guests come back. No. Guests come back because they're happy. I always ask people, especially what I do for a living, what are the first, what are the top three reasons people go to a hotel? Miranda, can you tell me the top three reasons? You probably heard this in my speech four times. Oh my gosh. I feel like I'm so on the spot now. I've never had more anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And and I'm glad he asked you first and not (laughs) me. I can give you my top reasons. (laughs) So the top reasons people go to hotels, oh, they're beautiful, blah, blah, blah. The, the, the real census of why people go to hotels is cleanliness, location, and price. I want to add one more. I want to add humans. I want people to say, I want to go back to that hotel because the people in that hotel were amazing. That has a quality that you can, you can actually monetize it. So if you monetize a level of one to five, the fifth level of, of hospitality in creating employees would be worth $20 a night. Huh? And you have a hotel that has 30,000 room nights. It's worth $600,000 to have great employees. If you could convince the industry that great employees monetized would bring people to your hotel, which brings people to your bottom line, then you begin to respect them employees. Then instead of being careful not to have dirty couches, you'd be careful not to have dirty uniforms. You would provide a position where people can be respectful. 
They can walk in and say, I'm a housekeeper. Love this place. And I make the best beds in town. They don't say that from a servility. They say it from a pride standpoint. It's what I do. What I do. There's nothing wrong with being a housekeeper. No. It's like being a nurse or a nurse, you know, a nurse practitioner. Or when I go into the hospital, it's like, are you a nurse? No, I'm a third nurse or a second nurse. Or I'm a house nurse. They're not upset or embarrassed about it. They're part of the staff. They're wearing a, a uniform that displays the fact that they're a professional. Can we make housekeepers professionals? Why not? Why can't we? Why can't we elevate them to the same level as any other employee? And more than that, I love the monetization side. If we could find some smart people in the hotel industry, they monetize uh, occupancy. They monetize average, right? They amortize all sorts of things. They even try to amortize design. This hotel does better because of this design. If you have a hotel, sir, that is unbelievable with staff, you will make more money. You will have more returns. Monetize it, get it out in the open, start a, a flame in the hotel industry that employees make money for you. And you may be able to turn this crazy industry around because it's not getting easier. I've spoken to this just to this point in, in, uh, in uh, Miranda's costs. You know, when I got in the hotel business, there were 35 managers in the hotel. Today, there's 19. And I tell Dean Chang and San Marco Angelo, hey, I don't want to sound apocalyptic or biblical, but the end is near. We're just going to not have a lot of managers. <sighs> Wait a second. Who's left? The employees. The staff. So we're getting rid of the managers. But you can't get rid of the housekeepers. You can't get rid of the busboys. So why not just monetize them, lift the level? So that right now is the whole big thing I said in the Wall Street Journal last week. A lot of high school kids don't want to go to college. They don't want to go to college anymore because what's college? They want to become a maybe a carpenter or a plumber or they want to have a trade. Well, why wouldn't the hospitality trade be just as good as a carpenter? If that person is as valuable as a carpenter or an electrician or a plumber, housekeeper. Think about making the housekeeper at the same level as a plumber. She does 15 or he does 15 rooms a day. Those 15 rooms occupied at, a, at $100. They're, they're, bringing, they're taking care of $1,500 of cash a day. $9,000 of cash a week. The housekeeper is in charge of $9,000 of cash. If she leaves a dirty sheet, if she doesn't clean the room correctly, she inhibits that $9,000. We need to recognize that. Recognize their value. So basically, recognizing the value of hospitality employees is key and critical to DEI. And I will tell you, from my perspective, disappointed, Jay, disappointed in what DEI is because it's becoming very structural. It's not attacking the sickness. It's not attacking directly at what's the problem. I'm talking about directly at what's the problem. I'm a solver. I'm not a process person. I don't like process people. When I started to feel DEI was becoming process-oriented, starting to get very ephemeral, very interesting. I want to change things. I don't want to talk about it. I've been talking about it for 50 years. Come on, guys. You started a new program, DEI. It sounds like a, a Chinese restaurant. How about let's get dignity? How about that for a slogan? Let's bring dignity to our people. Let's not worry about DEI. Let's not worry about 
doctors and doctorses and shares of DEI. Let's solve the problem. This isn't that hard. This isn't rocket scientists. This is simple. But you've got to get to the people that can change it. And those are the money changers, as Christ would say. Those are the people that are in charge. We need to go to the people that are in charge of companies and say to them, time to bring dignity to your staff. Those are the CEOs of major hotel companies. And they all have DEI divisions. Call the DEI and say, we want dignity for our housekeepers. How do we do that? I think that would make a change. I think that's great. And I think the way that you frame it, by framing the job image of someone in housekeeping as saying, hey, each week you're, you are responsible for $9,000 worth of revenue for this property. Like you are important. Like that's how important you are. I think that that already improves the job image, right? Um, Already adds dignity to the job image. Right. The front desk work checks them in, checks them out, never sees them again. The housekeeper sees them every day. The salesperson has, they, they, they see the wedding. They don't see the wedding people every day. You can change the life and stay of a guest by your attitude when you see them in the hallway. When they, like, when they turn and say, hi, good morning, boom, immediately you go, wow. When they leave that toilet paper with a little elephant or a little rhinoceros or a little you know, tissue coming out, you know they cared for you in some way. They're not asking for anything. I leave a tip. I, I throw dollars on the bed when I leave. Most people don't. How do you get, they're, they're, they're really struggling to be, to have dignity. Mm-hmm. They can go home and look at their children and say, I made the room. Mm-hmm. I did this really cute thing for the guests. But they don't know they're in charge of $9,000. And no one's told them that. Okay, New York City just raised that wage from seven to seven fifty. They're making seventy thousand a year in New York. It's not so much the money. I swear to God, it can't be. These people don't. I don't think they work for the money. I think they just desire a little bit of recognition. And some of the hotels do a good job. They have, you know, they have different days for different uh, ethnicities, which is great. And you know, complicating this is the ethnicity side because typically housekeeping departments have different dis. Uh, different ethnicities, but in general, they either come from Haiti, Latin America, African America, or Islam. That's what we have right now. And there are four areas that you have to take care of. In, in a place like uh, Minneapolis, which is probably 85, 90% of the people are Somalian. What are they doing for that culture? What are they doing? I'm, I'm telling you, they're doing nothing. I'm, doing, I'm, I'm renovating 10 hotels there. I see no evidence of their knowing they're from Somalia. Um, we do a good job in some parts of this country with African-American, you know, with uh, holidays that, that voice the African-American holidays. We do things with Latins. I think these are all good. I think they're just kind of band-aids. I'm looking for a deep-seated difference of opinion at high levels of corporate life, where they recognize that their ground employees are the reason guests come to hotels. Not because of design, uh, not because of design. People come back because they were treated well. And that treatment begins at a, at a line employee. When you realize that, it's not, it's not for a desk clerk, it's not, it's not the general manager, it's not the salesperson. It's the maid, takes care of the room where you sleep. They make your stay. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. 
no, I, I can think of several times that the housekeeping staff have been what made or broke my my stay. I was in San Diego for a conference several years ago, uh, staying there in the hotel by myself. Um, and I had a terrible, terrible case of food poisoning or a stomach bug or something. And so I could not leave the room. And when the housekeeping staff came to clean the room, I said, oh, you don't want to be in here. I'm super, super sick. So they said, okay, well, here's some extra towels. And she left and she came back 30 minutes later with a carton of soup. Uh, and I hadn't asked her for anything. Boom. But I, it, yeah. Anytime I'm back in that area, that's where I'm going to stay. Could you imagine if you had an entire hotel thick in that way? Right. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just like we were talking about with, with your gentleman in Reading. I, I ran a, uh, I, I was a general manager of the, uh, well, actually, I, I ran a company called Wyndham. And uh, we were in Pittsburgh. At, uh, we, lived in, uh, we lived in Upper St. Clair. Okay. I went yeah, to college I, in Pittsburgh at Robert Morris. There you go. Yeah. We were in Upper St. Clair where my daughter is a half Puerto Rican was a, uh, a star. What are you? Puerto Rican Jew? Really interesting. And she became a cheerleader up at St. Clair High School. I think there were like 12 uh, black people in town <laughs> at that point in time. And, you know, and Pittsburgh was a great place for a little diversity, right? Mm -hmm. You had Absolutely. the uh, hikes there. The uh, Anyway, you know, I, I, I don't find this difficult to do, but after 52 years in the business, I find it somewhat boring that they haven't done it. And I'm not sure how we change it because you have to change the raison d'etre. You have to change the reason why people do business. You have to get them from saying, we make business to make money, from saying, we make business how we make money. We have to change the thinking that people come to hotels because of design from people come to hotels because of the people that are in the hotel. Mm -hmm. If we can do that, even... 50% of it, it changes things. How do you do that? Well, you got to have a, you got to have one guy, two guys stand up, you know, it's uh, not Seta or, or Paluir or any of the CEOs and believe this. All of these companies, I, I have been in major companies. I have been an EVP of the second largest company in the world. I ran a $3 billion company. I ain't never seen nothing of this. I've never seen any recognition that this is important. It's they, they hire people in positions that they used to call, well, it wasn't diversity. It was just the positions of the early positions of trying to show that they liked minorities. But those people didn't do anything to change it. They just made process and they had meetings and they had, it was so cute to see. But now it's 30 years after and we still don't have what we're looking for. Yeah. So I think, I think it's doable. I think if we have chairs of diversity, like we do at FIU, we have to change their focus from what they're doing to what they should be doing, I think. Um, we have to be a little tough with the uh, CEOs of these companies and explain that this country is over 50% minority. It's not going to get whiter. And we have to say, have to convince them in some way, shape or form that the way to make money in their hotels is by having a dignified staff, period. If we do that, I think you'll see a change in their direction and their direction change would be in creating programs and programs that enforce uniforms and enforce locker rooms, but enforce the fact that their employees, if they are really great, will bring money to their products. 
Hopefully some of those decision makers are listening right now and they're being inspired by your pearls of wisdom that you're just dropping everywhere. Yes. Leon, do I have time for my signature question? Or yes, would you, you like to go first? Um, let's see. Let's ask my signature question first and then we'll go to yours. Okay. All right. So Jay, Jay, you, you, you had me thinking early on in the show when you said, I'm coming to Baltimore on Sunday. We're going to play racquetball, but that's not going to happen. So let's kind of talk about a Baltimore-related question anyway. Have you ever had a Maryland crab cake? I have. Where did you have this Maryland crab cake? I had a hotel in Baltimore. Oh, you had a hotel in Baltimore. Where at? The Hilton. I opened up a Don Shula's restaurant. It was a big Hilton on the way up on the top of the hill. Yeah. I uh, didn't do real well, but it was a uh, big Hilton, big Hilton. And I put two Don Shula's restaurants in there, and I yeah. absolutely stuffed myself with Baltimore crab cakes. All right. So you've, <laughs> had, you've had crab cakes, Maryland crab cakes. So that means when you decide to come to Baltimore to play racquetball, I will treat you to a Maryland crab cake to eat here at the table and i will give you some to take home as well so thank you i'm glad you had a maryland crab cake here's how we got on that question we were talking about crab cakes with a guest once and they said they had a crab cake a maryland crab cake at a barbecue joint in kansas city i'm like shut up that's not a craft not a maryland crab cake and eh, leave me alone so now it's become a part of the show to ask about the maryland crab <laughs> and you cake. passed check yes you're in you're in. I had another place. I'm trying to think of the of the hotel. It wasn't. What's the what's the name? What's the city? It's near near Baltimore. Gosh, uh, Annapolis. It wasn't Annapolis. Towson. It was, uh, it was part. It was like south of D.C. It was the second airport down there. Okay, so by but Dallas anyway, Airport. Uh -huh. Well, they, they they had a lot of Maryland uh, restaurants in it. Uh, I think it was outside of Baltimore. You know, I get confused over these years. Um, I, I love Baltimore. I love the harbor. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was there, I think, a little earlier than even before they built the uh, uh, the aquarium. Mm -hmm. uh, and Baltimore, as you know, had some serious financial difficulties. All right. But uh, it's coming back. The people are great. Uh, so I take you up on the crab cake. All right. uh, I, I probably will hold <laughs> off on the racquetball because I know you're bringing me on. There is no way. There is no way you guys help me. You're like a guy that walks up and goes, you don't need money. Let me show you this trick. No, sir. No, sir. Give yourself away. You're a great racquetball player. However, I will say this. How about ping pong? Oh, let's do it. Let's oh, go. Let me in. Ping let's pong go. on. I played ping pong in Asia on an Asian team, a touring team. Oh. They told me to, they told me to play Chinese hand, uh, Chinese ping pong with a racket like this. Yeah. Uh, so I will, I will, I will, I will meet you on the ping pong table, whereas afterwards we can celebrate with some cold beer and a crab cake. We'll I was do about it. to say we'll I can, it. I can host the beer pong if you want to do that. <laughs> 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 so Jay, I want to um, wrap it up. Thank you so much for sharing all your time with us this evening. I want to ask you what I ask all of our guests, and that is, if you could go back in time, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? And it can only be one thing. You're going to make it. Oh, I love that. 
You make it. I can tell you, you hit the year. Uh, as, you, as you might have figured, I'm a 60s person. And I was a uh, total mess in the 60s. But because of those things that made me a total mess, one day I was just standing in front of a mirror and I said, you're gonna make it. And that was it. And you know, just to make FIU more important, the only other person in my life that ever said I was gonna make it was Tony Marshall. And uh, when I wrote my speech for the valedictorian speech, he made me say it in front of him a hundred times. And I said to him, well, Tony, I don't know if I believe what's in this speech, because it's very, geez, you're gonna make it. And he says, Jay, you're gonna make it. And all through my career until he died, he was always there saying, you're gonna make it. Until the point, I believe it. So you're gonna make it. If people believe you're gonna make it, you cannot not make it. That's it. Just like when you go on the court, you know you're gonna win. I love that. I, like I love it. that so much. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for involving me. I appreciate it. Let's bring Oren back. Hey, Oren, how's it going? Doing well. What an amazing episode you all had this evening. I'll tell you something. Checking in is definitely where you want to tune in and get great information, great feedback that we always want to make sure that you can take with you and apply to life. Thank you for joining us here at Checking In, a lodging DEI chat. I am your studio host, Oren Stewart. Have a great rest of your week. Take care.